This is Space Time, Series 20, Episode 93, for broadcast on the 1st of December, 2017. Coming up on Space Time, a new theory on the universe before the Big Bang, the next nearest planet to our solar system, and Dawn explores the interior evolution of the dwarf planet Ceres. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new hypothesis is proposing to eliminate the need for a cosmological space-time singularity and with it the Big Bang which kicked off the cosmos 13.8 billion years ago. Instead, physicist Giuliano Cesar Silva Nevis and Alberto Vares Sar from Brazil's University of Campinas suggest the universe's current expansion phase was preceded by a big crunch contraction. Nevis says he believes the Big Bang never happened, and instead it's a bouncing universe, with infinite prior cycles of expansion followed by contraction. The problem is, this hypothesis needs to account for the apparent accelerated expansion of the universe being observed today due to what appears to be a mysterious force known as dark energy. Dark energy took over from gravity as the dominating force in the universe about 6 billion years ago, and it's steadily been getting stronger ever since. For more than five decades now, the Big Bang Theory has been the best-known and most accepted cosmological narrative to explain the beginning and evolution of the universe. But there's hardly a consensus among scientists. That's because the Big Bang Theory does have some serious problems, such as the need for a sudden and inexplicable period of cosmic inflation milliseconds after the Big Bang happened. That's needed to explain the apparent symmetry in the large-scale structure of the universe. The Big Bang Theory has its origins in the late 1920s, when US astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that almost all the galaxies he was looking at were moving away from us, and the further away they were, the higher their velocity. Then, from about the 1940s onwards, scientists guided by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity have been developing a detailed model of the evolution of the universe since the Big Bang. Depending on the Hubble constant and your version of the mass-energy budget of the universe, the models they've come up with lead to three possible outcomes. Either there's an infinite expansion of the universe at ever higher velocities, the so-called big freeze and big rip scenarios, both of which are dependent on the strength of dark energy. A less favoured alternative is the steady state, in which the expansion of the universe glides to an eventual halt thanks to gravity. But that's not likely to happen based on dark energy's accelerating expansion observations. The third and least favoured of the theories based on current observations is that gravity will eventually take over from dark energy, causing the expansion of the universe to slow down, stop and eventually reverse, with the cosmos contracting to what's known as a big crunch. And again, that doesn't seem very likely, based on dark energy's accelerating expansion. Still, in its simplest terms, that's what Nevis believes. He suggests the elimination of a key aspect of the standard cosmological model, namely the need for a space-time singularity known as the Big Bang. That challenges the idea that time has a beginning, and it opens the door to the possibility that the current expansion phase was preceded by a period of contraction. Nevis also suggests that the switch from contraction to expansion may not have destroyed all traces of the preceding phase, and finding that evidence will be the key. 
His hypothesis, published in the journal General Relativity and Gravitation, looks at solutions to general relativity equations describing the geometry of the cosmos by proposing a scalar factor that makes the rate at which the universe is expanding dependent on both time and cosmological scale. According to Nevis, measuring the rate at which the universe is expanding with standard Big Bang cosmology requires a mathematical function that depends only on cosmological time. However, he says with the scale factor, the Big Bang itself, or cosmologic singularity if you prefer, ceases to be a necessary condition for the cosmos to begin universal expansion. A concept from mathematics that expresses indefiniteness, singularity, was used by cosmologists to characterise the primordial cosmologic singularity that happened some 13.8 billion years ago, when all the matter and energy of the universe was compressed into an initial state of infinite density and temperature in zero volume, a situation where the traditional laws of physics can no longer describe what's going on. Eliminating the singularity brings back the idea of a bouncing universe on the theoretical stage of cosmology. And according to Nevis, the absence of a singularity at the start of space-time opens up the possibility that vestiges of a previous contraction phase may well have withstood the phase change and may still be evident in today's expansion of the universe. Nevis conceptualises that bouncing cosmologies rooted in the hypothesis the Big Crunch would give way to an eternal succession of universes, creating extreme conditions of density and temperature in order to instigate a new inversion in the process, giving way to expansion in another bounce. Black holes are the starting point of Nevis's bouncing universe hypothesis. He says there may be remains from black holes from past evolutions of the universe in today's ongoing expansion. These earlier black holes would have survived intact through the bottleneck of the bounce between contraction and expansion. According to Nevis, a black hole is not defined by its singularity, but rather by its event horizon, that point of no return inside of which an object cannot escape and is doomed to fall forever into the singularity. In modern science, a theory is worthless if it can't be verified, and that's where Nevis believes he has a chance. He says it involves looking for traces of events, including remnants of black holes in a contraction phase, that may have remained in today's ongoing expansion phase. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A temperate Earth-sized planet has been discovered just 11 light-years away. The New World, named Ross 128b, is currently the second closest temperate planet ever detected, the nearest being Proxima b, which orbits around the star Proxima Centauri some 4.25 light-years from Earth. The planet orbits its host star, Ross 128, every 9.9 Earth days. That places Ross 128b either in or near the star's habitable Goldilocks zone, the region around the star, where temperatures are not too hot and not too cold but just right for liquid water, essential for life as we know it, to pool on the surface of a terrestrial world. Astronomers say Ross 128b is therefore expected to be a temperate world with a surface temperature that may be close to that of the Earth. However, its host star, Ross 128, is a spectral type M red dwarf, and planets orbiting red dwarfs are usually not very good candidates in the search for habitable worlds. That's because their host stars tend to erupt in extremely powerful stellar flares and geomagnetic storms, which bathe any orbiting planets in deadly ultraviolet and X-ray radiation. The nearest star to the Sun, Proxima Centauri, is a typical red dwarf which exhibits just this behaviour. But the good news is, it seems Ross 128 is an unusually quiet red dwarf. Red dwarfs are the dimmest, coolest and least massive main-sequence stars. 
They can be as small as 75 times the mass of Jupiter and have surface temperatures as low as 2,000 degrees Celsius. But they're also the longest living and most numerous stars, comprising at least two-thirds of all stars in the known universe. All these features combine to make red dwarfs ideal targets in the search for exoplanets. Consequently, Ross 128b will be a prime target for the European Southern Observatory's extremely large telescope. When completed in 2024, the Extremely Large Telescope, or ELT, will have a 40-metre main mirror. That's enough to allow it to search for biomarkers in the planet's atmosphere. Ross 128b was detected using the European Southern Observatory's HARPS high-accuracy radial velocity planet searcher instrument. HARPS detects exoplanets using the wobble method. It's able to detect the ever-so-slight wobble of a star caused by the gravitational pull of an orbiting planet. The HARPS data confirmed that Ross 128b orbits some 20 times closer to its host star than Earth's orbit around the Sun. Despite its proximity, Ross 128b receives only 1.38 times more heat than the Earth does. That's because its host star, being a red dwarf, has only about half the surface temperature of the Sun. As a result, Ross 128b's surface temperature is estimated to be between a high of about 20 degrees Celsius and a low of minus 60 degrees. Astronomers have also determined that the Ross 128 system is moving towards our own solar system. And based on their calculations, Ross 128b will replace Proxima b as the nearest exoplanet in about 79,000 years' time. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We're going to look at a nearby planet. It's not in our solar system, but it really, in, ter- in terms of uh, the size of the universe and and everything, it's pretty darn close. A uh, a temperate Earth-sized planet, 11 light years away, and the beauty of this one is that it is in the right place to be, you know, livable by the sound of it. That's right. This is, um, uh, once again, a really interesting story, which uh, actually has uh, come from the European Southern Observatory. We're going to hear more and more, by the way, Andrew, from the European Southern Observatory, because Australia is now a strategic partner with them. Yes, I remember Uh, talking about that, and uh, yeah, they're, they're doing some amazing things. Yeah, they are fantastic stuff. And um, it's a great, you know, it's privilege really in the sense that Australia now belongs to a European organisation but running the best telescopes in the world. And one of the instruments that they have at ESO is a thing called HARPS. And HARPS has been going probably for the best part of 20 years now. HARPS is an acronym for High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher. And that tells you all about it. What it tells you is that it's looking for planets around other stars. And it does it by what we call the Doppler Wiggle Technique as a planet it goes around its parent star it pulls the star very slightly to one side and the other as it's going around and that causes the star itself to have a velocity which we can detect from earth we call it the radial velocity it's the speed along the line of sight Mm. so harps has done a fantastic job with discovering new planets and this one is its most recent triumph it is a planet around a star as you said, with the fancy name of Ross 128. So this is called Ross 128b. You always start with B for planet names. A is probably the star itself. I was going to say that, yeah. yeah, That's right. Ross 128b is a a low-mass planet. That means it's sort of similar to the Earth. Goes around its parent star every 9.9 days. So that's their year. Wow. Pretty short, really. But that, of course, implies that it's much closer to its parent star than we are to the Sun. And indeed, it's about 20 times nearer to its parent star than we are to the sun but it doesn't get fried and the reason for that is that it's the, a cooler the, star it's a cooler star it's, ross 128b 
it's, it's a rock music star. It is so cool Very cool. that we give it a special name. It's called a red dwarf star. Uh-huh. And red dwarfs are actually the commonest stars in our galaxy. Uh-huh. And indeed, the exoplanet, which is a planet going around another star, the one that holds the record as being the nearest is also going around a red dwarf star. That is Proxima Centauri b. Proxima Centauri is the nearest star to the Earth. It's 4.2 light years away, apart from the sun, of course. The sun's the nearest star to the Earth, but this is the nearest other star to the Earth. 4.2 light years away. We know it has an Earth-sized planet going around it, but the difference is a critical one because Proxima Centauri, which holds the record at 4.2 light years away, the nearest exoplanet, the parent star, Proxima Centauri, is actually a pretty normal red dwarf, which means it's a bit violent. Ah. It's got solar flares that spit out subatomic particles and basically bombard anything within their vicinity with these subatomic particles that could be quite detrimental to the idea of any living organisms form. Right. And that's where ROS128 wins out because ROS128 is basically a very benign red dwarf star. It is what is called, wait for it, a quiet star. Oh. It doesn't have these <laughs> bursts of... Yeah, doesn't have these bursts of high-energy particles bombarding stuff. So it's possible that Ross-128b, the planet, as well as being in the temperate zone, the habitable zone around the star, which is where liquid water can exist, it's possible that it's also one of the most benign radiation environments that we know. There's one final twist to this story, which I like very much, and that is, given the movement of Ross-128, the star itself, carrying its planet along with it, it's actually heading towards us. Ooh. And eventually, and it's not very far down the track, you can put this in your diary, it's 79,000 years away. <laughs> It'll be nearer than Proxima Centauri. Gee, that's so fast. Se- that is really fast when it you is, think about it. It's really fast, yeah. It's just a flash, you know, it's just zipping through space. So in 79,000 years, I'm not sure that you and I will be talking then, but hopefully somebody still will, it will be the nearest habitable world to our own in terms of its kind of record-breaking status. Mm. So, yeah, the closest exoplanet to Earth in 79,000 years, it may even be worth making a trip there. Who knows? Well, by then, I would think we probably would have uh, sorted out some of the problems of interstellar travel. Interstellar travel, I think so. It will either be gone altogether or Mm. we'll have fixed things so that we can just zip around the galaxy and, yeah, it'll be all I I need to ask my stock question, though. If this planet is Earth-like and is in the Goldilocks zone and is, you know... Um, somewhere where life could potentially exist. What's it like standing on the surface of this one? Well, if it's a rocky planet, and the signs seem to be that it will be, with a temperature thought to be just slightly warmer than the Earth's average temperature, but still within the, the range which would allow liquid water to exist. I think they're saying the equilibrium temperature is between minus 60 and plus 20 degrees Celsius. So minus 60 at the poles, presumably, 20 on the equator. It sounds perfect, really. It sounds nice. Um, yeah, so liquid water. Now, we don't know whether it's got water. These are observations that are yet to be made. And, of course, that's one of the exciting things about the time we live in because we're on the brink of seeing a new generation of what are called extremely large telescopes. ESO are building one of their own. That will be the biggest telescope in the world when it comes online in about a decade. But we in Australia are already part of something called the GMT, the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is effectively a 22-metre telescope. And that will be capable of measuring the contents of the atmosphere 
atmospheres of some of these exoplanets. So that's how we will perhaps find out, first of all, whether there is liquid water there, and maybe even whether there are what are called biomarkers, materials within the atmosphere that can only be produced by living organisms. That's the kind of thing we've got to look for. So very exciting. And that's not that far away. And once they build the GET, the gigantically enormous telescope, (laughs) we'll just be able to wave and they can wave back. Exactly, that's right. They'll wave back. Of course, it takes 11 years for our wave to get there and another 11 years to come back. But that's all right. We can live with that. (laughs) That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Space Time with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash spacetimewithstuartgary. Scientists studying the internal structure and composition of the dwarf planet Ceres have found a close relationship between its internal evolution and its surface features. The 945-kilometre-wide Ceres is the largest body in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The new findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, is based on data collected by NASA's Dawn spacecraft to analyse Ceres' surface features, revealing clues about the dwarf planet's internal evolution. Specifically, the study explored linear features, the chains of pits and small secondary craters common on Ceres. The findings align with the idea that hundreds of millions to maybe a billion years ago, materials beneath Ceres' surface pushed upwards and outwards onto the exterior, in the process creating fractures in the crust. The study's lead author, Jennifer Scully from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says that as this material moved upwards from underneath Ceres' surface, portions of Ceres' outer layers were pulled apart, forming the fractures. The indication of upwelling material under Ceres' surface allows for another perspective in establishing how the dwarf planet may have evolved. The Dawn scientists generated a map of over 2,000 linear features larger than a kilometre on Ceres that are located outside impact craters. They looked at two kinds of linear features in order to better understand their connection to the upwelling material. They studied secondary crater chains, the most common of the linear features on Ceres. These are long strings of circular depressions created by ejector fragments thrown out of large impact craters as they formed on Ceres' surface. The team also examined pit chains, which are surface expressions of subsurface fractures. Among the two features, only the pit chains provide an insight into Ceres' interior evolution. The author's biggest challenge was differentiating between the secondary crater chains and the pit chains. Although the features look strikingly similar, researchers were able to distinguish between them based on their detailed shapes. Secondary craters tend to be comparatively rounder than pit chains, which are more irregular in shape, and the pit chains lack the raised rims usually found around secondary craters. While it's possible that the freezing of that subsurface ocean we mentioned the other week may have formed the fractures, the authors of this new study think that scenario is unlikely, as the location of the pit chains aren't evenly dispersed across Ceres' surface. It's also unlikely that the fractures were formed through stresses from large impacts. That's because there's no evidence on Ceres' surface of impacts substantial enough to generate fractures on that scale. 
Scully says the most likely explanation is that a region of upwelling material formed the pit chains, and that material may have flowed up from Ceres' interior because it's less dense than the surrounding materials. Dawn's mission to the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is the only mission to ever orbit two extraterrestrial worlds. It first orbited the giant asteroid Vesta for 14 months from 2011 to 2012, then continued on to Ceres, where it achieved orbit insertion in March 2015. Studying both Ceres and Vesta provides scientists with an interesting contrast. That's because these two worlds are separated by what's known as the snow line, the distance from the sun where it's cold enough for volatile compounds such as water, ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide to condense into solid ice grains. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Blue Origin claims its new massive heavy-lift launch vehicle, the new Glenn, should be ready for its maiden flight in 2020. The new Glenn is a two- or three-stage orbital launch vehicle capable of carrying up to 45 tonnes into low-Earth orbit and 13 tonnes into a geostationary transfer orbit. Design work on the vehicle began in 2012, and high-level specifications for the rocket were publicly released in 2016. The new Glenn is named after Senator John Glenn, the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth. New Glenn's first stage will be powered by seven of Blue Origin's new BE-4 engines, burning liquid oxygen and liquid methane. A single vacuum version of the BE-4 will be used for the second stage, while an upgraded version of the older BE-3 motor, originally developed for the company's other launch vehicle, the suborbital New Shepard, will be deployed on the third stage. The New Shepard is named after Alan Shepard, the first American astronaut to reach space. Like the New Shepard, the New Glenn's first stage will be designed to be reusable. The company claims it's well on the way to having the new rocket, the launch pad and landing facilities all in place by the proposed 2020 deadline. The company's developing a specialised launch facility at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida, where the old Launch Complex 36 has been demolished to make way for the new pad. Blue Origin's also reportedly close to finalising a deal for the purchase of a large ship, which will be used as a seagoing landing pad for the launch vehicle's first stage booster. And the company's also taken over the Cape's Launch Complex 11 site, which will house engine testing facilities for its new BE-4 rocket motors. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. And North Korea has successfully launched its most powerful intercontinental ballistic missile. The 53-minute flight involved Pyongyang's new Horsong-15 or Mars-15 ICBM. The missile was flown on what's known as a high-lofted trajectory, reaching an altitude of 4,475 kilometres before splashing down some 950 kilometres from its launch pad and just 370 kilometres west of the Japanese coastline. The flight means North Korean ICBMs now have an effective range of over 13,000 kilometres. That's enough to hit just about all of the continental United States, including its east coast, as well as Europe or Australia. North Korea claims its missile was equipped with what they described as a super-large heavy warhead. That's believed to indicate a correct weighted dummy version of its thermonuclear warhead. 
The launch was North Korea's 20th ballistic missile launch this year and possibly its third successful test of the ICBM following two launches in July. It's thought this flight was designed specifically to test the atmospheric re-entry capabilities of the warhead design. That's a known weak point in previous North Korean missile tests. The 20-metre-tall Horsong-15 appears to be a modified version of the Horsong-14 flown back in July, which itself is a two-stage version of the original Horsong-12 first tested in May. The first-stage engine of the Horsong-15 appears to be the same as that used on the Horsong-12, with a single liquid-fueled main engine and four vernier thrusters for stability and guidance. The main rocket engines based on the Soviet Union-era ID-250 or modified ID-251 engine, originally developed for the Soviet R-36 missile. These rocket motors were originally built in the Ukraine for use on Russian rockets. The engines used dinitrogen tetroxide and unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine fuel, which North Korea can't produce and would therefore have to be purchased from either China or Russia. According to one source, the engines were acquired through illicit channels operating in either Russia or the Ukraine. And South Korean intelligence claims Pyongyang received up to 40 of the ID-251 engines from Russia in 2016, which would explain the sudden increase in missile test flights. The new missile's upper stage is based on the upper stage designed originally for Iranian missile and space launch vehicles with increased range. Both North Korea and the Islamic Republic of Iran have a long history of close cooperation in both missile and nuclear weapons technology development. A new study claims people with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, respond differently to social chemical signals compared to neurotypical people. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Neuroscience, could explain why some people with ASD misread emotions. To carry out their tests, researchers infused a mannequin with the smell of fear, in this case, stressed skydiver sweat, and then asked participants to rate its trustworthiness. While people with ASD were unfazed, those without autism were less likely to trust the mannequin, perhaps unconsciously responding to the chemical signature of fear. Researchers say the findings suggest that those with ASD have altered responses to chemical signals, which affects how they read human emotions. It's been revealed that the US sugar industry covered up evidence of harmful health effects caused by consuming too much sugar. A report in the journal PLOS Biology claims a study of the industry's internal documents shows studies between 1967 and 1971 found a link between high sugar and high starch diets with heart disease and bladder cancer. However, the sugar industry never published those findings. The report also found that the sugar industry then secretly funded reviews discounting this finding. Even today, researchers still debate whether fructose, the sugar most prevalent in sugary drinks and candy, affects blood. The study says the truth is hard to find, with so many food and beverage industry studies muddying the waters. A new study in the journal Scientific Reports has concluded that claims that Dolly the sheep had early onset arthritis because of her cloning are unfounded. Since none of Dolly's x-rays have survived, researchers re-x-rayed her skeleton, as well as her daughter Bonnie's and two contemporary clones. They then compared them to x-rays of healthy, naturally conceived sheep. They found that Dolly's bones were similar to those of other sheep her age, and that generally older sheep showed more signs of wear and tear indicative of arthritis. Well, as any seasoned drinker will tell you, consuming different types of alcoholic drinks can elicit different sorts of emotions. Now, a study reported in the British Medical Journal has mapped the feelings that people associate with different types of alcoholic drinks. The study looked at survey data from 30,000 18 to 34-year-olds in 21 countries. 
Researchers found spirits were generally most commonly associated with feelings of aggression, energy and confidence, while red wine and beer were more commonly associated with relaxation. The authors say understanding how emotions are linked to drinking choice can help address alcoholic misuse. Well, if the world's ever stopped for you during an evening of amorous exploits, beware. It could be more than just your imagination. A new study has found that although very rare, sexual activity can occasionally be associated with sudden cardiac arrest. The findings presented to the 2017 American Heart Association scientific sessions is based on 4,577 cases of cardiac arrest in adults between 2002 and 2015 in the northwestern United States. Researchers found 34 cardiac arrests occurred either during or within an hour of sexual intercourse. However, compared to others who had sudden cardiac arrest, people with a heart attack associated with sexual intercourse had a 94% chance of being male. In fact, one in a hundred cases of cardiac arrest in men was associated with sexual activity, compared to just one in a thousand cases for women. The presence of heart disease and the use of heart medications was common and similar in both groups. The new data may help inform discussions between healthcare providers and patients on the safety of sexual activity. And finally for now, we take a skeptic's view on the issue of Chinese medicine. The scientific method involves observation, hypothesis, experimentation, analysis and conclusion. Science is all about critical thinking. It's a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it, test their claim, see if it's factual and stands up, or if it's just a giant steaming pile of woo. That's what the skepticism movement's all about, a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. Traditional Chinese medicine is a history dating back thousands of years, a quality which has given it a level of credibility in the general community it may not fully deserve. That's not to say traditional Chinese medicine's all bad. There are many treatments practiced in Chinese medicine which have shown themselves to work. The trouble is there are many more which don't, and telling them apart's the problem. It's safe to say the good bits of Chinese medicine have been scientifically tested and fully peer-reviewed and proven to work, and are now a common part of conventional Western medical practice anyway. As for the rest, things like powdered rhino horn and dried tiger penis, they were always garbage, designed to do nothing more than delude the naive and gullible and take their money. Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics, is a regular contributor to the space-time program. And he joins us now to take a look at traditional Chinese medicine. Okay, so let's let's start by defining what it is that we're talking about. So traditional Chinese medicine is a combination of uh, things like acupuncture, which we've recently discussed, as you mentioned, uh, and other physical therapies such as uh, qigong, reflexology, and uh, there's all, all kinds of other physical therapies. And on the other hand, there's an assortment of animal, mineral, vegetable products that include all kinds of, uh, of different things from rhino horn uh, through uh, shark cartilage to all kinds of herbs and all kinds of chemicals that exist either in nature or are extracted from nature. Traditional Chinese medicine is not as traditional as we think it is. It stems from a wide variety of pre-scientific folk remedies and healing traditions that were uh, largely displaced by Western medicine when it became available in China. The statistics today suggest that about 80% of Chinese use Western medicine, uh, or in other words, evidence-based medicine. The number is even higher when looking at things that are moderate to serious in terms of the uh, effect on the patient. So it is not as widely used in China as we think it is. It is not really as traditional as we think it is. That actually comes as a shock to me because the whole genre of Chinese traditional medicine 
seems to be one of this goes back to ancient times it's what everyone uses it's proven through history and you're saying that's not the case well it is in some sense because a lot of these things are very old and there's some very old texts that show that they've been used sometimes thousands of years ago however they were never really used to treat anything serious because it was not particularly effective and the life expectancy in China has risen dramatically and the life quality in, uh, as well at the same time has risen dramatically when Western medicine was adopted. But the problem was that in the 1950s, there was a shortage of Chinese practitioners trained in Western medicine. And there was also a matter of nationalistic pride, part of Mao Zedong's great leap forward. And that's when traditional Chinese medicine was popularized in the form that we know today as if it's some kind of coherent whole that everybody does the same. Whereas in fact, it was always this assortment of different things from different places. You know, China isn't one country from a cultural perspective. There are many different cultural backgrounds and traditions within China and each had its own medicine. TCM as we know today is definitely something that was invented in the 50s. And by now, it's a huge export industry for China. It's, it's something like $40 billion a year. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of well, we give them dehydrated baby milk. They give us Chinese medicine. <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about the the problems with t traditional Chinese medicine. The main problem with traditional Chinese medicine is that it lacks evidence. We in the West are now used to using medicine that has evidence for it. Traditional Chinese medicine generally lacks evidence. There is a there's a large number of studies, but most of them are small and lo or low quality or both. There is also a serious problem with peer-reviewed Chinese scientific literature in that the peer review isn't really up to Western standards. And, and that's not meant to be critical, it's just stating a fact. Absolutely. So most studies of traditional Chinese medicine come from China. And first, the success rate of these studies is so high that it's clear that there's something fishy going on. It, when we study things in the West that have been developed over a very long period of time, we find the success rate is a lot lower. On top of that, in 2016, a one-year review of clinical trials by China's State Food and Drug Administration concluded that more than 80% of clinical data is fabricated. That's the word that's used. So it's not just that it's faulty or wrong, it is actually fabricated. To me, that's actually a relief that that's come out because that shows that China is trying to clean up this terrible problem it has with wacko peer review. Yes, so there's conflicting efforts in China, and I'll get to that in a moment. So on the one hand, yes, absolutely, they're trying to look to do more about the evidence for Chinese medicine. And some of it is to do with the problems that I'm going to describe in a moment. But there's also at the same time, there's a bit of a push to sell it out to the world. I'll get back to that in a moment. So the second major problem with Chinese medicine is that it can be harmful and even deadly. In 2015, an analysis of imported traditional Chinese medicine products found that nearly nine in 10 contains some form of undeclared substance, including strychnine, arsenic, snow leopard. Yes, actual snow leopard, the animal, pit viper, warfarin, which is a very powerful anticoagulant, and Viagra. So there were actually active ingredients that did not come from Chinese medicine. A 2017 review of nearly 500 TCM products by Hong Kong's hospital toxicologists found that most contain modern pharmaceutical grade ingredients. So the problem is that there's things in there that could be harmful where the quantities and the doses are not controlled properly, and this could cause a lot of harm. It's not the snow leopard or the rhino horn, it's the uh, Viagra. And, and of course, there's always the problem with treatments that are not evidence-based, and that is that there is a risk that patients would choose to forego effective treatment in favor of something that at best won't help them. Now, I wanna point out that TCM can be a source for good. In 2015, 
Tu Yu Yu won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for her work on curing malaria. But she was awarded the Nobel Prize because she did it the right way. She chose the indications and ideas that arose out of traditional use, and then she studied them using scientific tools. Her research saves hundreds of thousands of lives every year, but the reason that that outcome was possible is that Tu did not accept traditional use as evidence, only as a clue. And then she used the tools of science to arrive at real evidence-based conclusions that and now to the big risk that we face nowadays. China is in the midst of a huge push to increase the penetration of TCM in the West. Just as in the 1950s, the reasons are both political and economic. But we are now living in a much more connected world. There's a global economy. It's much easier for TCM to use free trade agreements, for example, to avoid the scrutiny that medical treatment should be subjected to. And we are seeing that already in Australia, where traditional Chinese practitioners are able to register as medical practitioners in a way that it would not be possible for them without this kind of free trade agreement. Actually, that's quite alarming. It is very alarming, and I'm not sure that there's something that can be done easily because this goes beyond the local laws that we have, but it's definitely something that we may need to make sure that the public is aware of. We've had the same sort of thing before with homeopathy, and uh, the Australian regulators have, have come out and uh, really poo-poo that idea. Why can't they do the same with this? Well, first of all, homeopathy is quite easy to poo-poo because it, it is impossible for homeopathy to work. Homeopathy is, even on a theoretical basis, impossible. Whereas traditional Chinese medicine isn't, you know, these are active ingredients that, you know, the plants and animals that could have ingredients in them that could potentially help. The problem is that they're not studied correctly. They're not the whole process of taking an idea or a basic ingredient and developing it into a treatment does not go through the same rigor that we are used to in the West and that we expect in the West. And that's the problem. It's not that in principle it can't work. It can. And as I mentioned earlier, some of it does, is, yeah. Mm. yeah, some of it does. Uh, but even then, you know, for example, let's let's say that we find that something works. It's still possible that this something works in specific doses. However, if you get uh, you go to your local ch traditional Chinese practitioner, you may actually get something that is in a dose that is either too high or too low and uh, you know could cause harm or could not help. So the problem is it's not particularly well regulated. It's not, it's just not at the same level of quality as what we're used to in the West even when there is evidence for things that uh, that they do actually provide some therapeutic benefit. So it's a lack of scrutiny in research and then manufacturing. That's Aran Segev, President of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Times also broadcast coast-to-coast coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio, and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash spacetimewithstuartgary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 